Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. I'm going to ask you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. This morning we continue our study of the book of Exodus. And we have been in this study for some time, the 21st week now. And as we have been exploring this story, an ancient one that is every bit as contemporary as the one you and I are living, we've learned that the first 15 chapters of this book, the book of Exodus, are all about liberating a people from enslavement. And then we learn that chapters 16, 17, 18, they are all about the wilderness journey that comes after a people is set free. During our freedom and liberation, there's always a period of time afterwards when we wonder if we really wanted this kind of freedom. Because now it means a new rhythm of life. Now it means a new kind of way to exist in the world as free people, yet following the one who has set us free. So chapter 19 it comes, and in 19 we see God consecrating the people, making them his own people. And chapters 20, 21, 22, and 23 then become the book of covenant, where God begins to establish a covenant with God's people. And right here in chapter 20, we find the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. And the Ten Commandments, we've slowed the train down a little bit, and we have gone one by one, each commandment one at a time. And we find ourselves today on the ninth commandment. It's chapter 20, verse 16. Hear these words. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor the reading of the sacred word. Would you pray with me? Good and loving God, this day we yield ourselves to the power of your spirit in us and among us. We've opened up your word and we have have fixed our attention upon one particular instruction today. And we pray that you would show us something about this command that frees us in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Today I wonder if in exploring the ninth chapter or the ninth verse of chapter 20, I wonder if we might for just a little while talk about Jenga, feather pillows, and Coco the gorilla. Jenga Fellow or feather pillows and Coco the gorilla. Jenga. The first thing that we need to know about the ninth commandment is this. As with all of the other commandments, don't forget what God is up to in all ten of them. 
God is attempting to do something that shapes a people into a peoplehood, into a people with an identity, a, a way of life that is distinct in the world. And, and he has just set them free from enslavement in Egypt, but every one of the Ten Commandments is a kind of freedom in and of itself. Every commandment has a, a way to keep them free from enslavement to something. Don't forget that this entire series that we've been uh, studying, the book of Exodus, it, it has a subtitle. I've, I've chosen to call this series Exodus, Freed to Be, right? And every one of these commandments has something they're attempting to keep us free from. For example, in the first commandment, have no other gods before me, is, is a commandment that's intended to keep us free from enslavement to the illusion that there are other gods worthy of our lives. Uh, the, the injunction against murder, you shall not murder, is, is a command intended to keep us free from the enslavement of what we called a few weeks ago the vortex of vengeance and violence where one pays back the other and the other and the other. The command against adultery, for example, is another example of attempting to keep us free from the enslavement to guilt and shame and a network of deceit and lies. You see, so every one of the commandments has some attempt to keep us free from something. I mean, it sounds a little kind of oxymoronic, doesn't it? Because it's their commandments. They're, in fact, uh, the rabbis refer to the Torah, the law, as a yoke seems like something that would enslave us, right? But it's a yoke of freedom. The Torah is also referred to as the gift. It reminds me a little bit of an old hymn, I bind myself in freedom's chains. Isn't that interesting language? His cross has set me free. God's anvil forged each link with love in Christ our liberty. See, So each command is an attempt to be bound to a life of freedom, if you can think of it that way. And the ninth command is no different. The ninth command, do not bear false witness against your neighbor, is also an attempt to keep us free from some kind of enslavement. And maybe the best way to start digging into this verse is to understand that the, the context of this verse, in fact, the language all around the verse, is courtroom language. It's meant to be understood in the context, originally at least, as a courtroom. If you were brought into the court to be a material witness and, and you, you were to give testimony against the accused person, then the injunction is you cannot give false witness or, or false testimony because if you do, it dismantles the entire system in which we, we promote justice and equity and balance in our social structure. So in other words, if you can't trust the testimony that's being spoken in a court of law, then the court of law and every other kind of system or institution that's meant to, to sustain social cohesion then is threatened. It becomes vulnerable. And the ancients knew this. The ancients were so serious about this that the Hebrews, the punishment was if you were found to be lying in court, then the punishment you received was to be equal to the punishment uh, of whatever it was that the person had done, what they would have received if they were guilty. And that could include death. 
The Romans would throw, well, the Romans threw guilty people over, over the cliff. If you were, if you were found uh, guilty of perjury or lying in court, uh, you could be hurled over the side of a cliff. The, the Egyptians would cut off noses and ears because in their mind it was so significant to tell the truth that if you don't tell the truth about basically what we see in life and observe in life, if you can't trust the court then the idea and hope of justice and social order begins to fragment one little bit at a time. Which is where Jenga comes in. You ever played Jenga? Jenga's a fun little game. So you, you kind of, oop, not that one. How about this one? I'll take this one. You usually play with an opponent one at a time. Yeah, you begin to take little pieces just hoping that you pick one that won't collapse. There we go. You know, if, if Glenn were here, I might challenge him to a game right here on stage. See, I'm cheating a little bit. You can't really. You take it and hope. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, look at that. One at a time, you try to make sure. Oh, that's a good one. See, see what else I got on the front. Second move. No, no, that move, that move. Whoo. Okay. Here, how about this one? I'll take this one off. <laughs> <laughs> I think about I think about Jenga. Because the context of the ninth commandment is this: if you don't speak truthfully of your neighbor, you one little block at a time begin to dismantle the inherent trust that we have with one another to live peaceably in hope and justice and love and beauty and grace in the world. So one, every lie that we hear, every, oh, I'm just going to go up to the top. I'm just scared, see. Every lie that we tell, every untruth that we harbor, every half-truth that we share, oh, look there, right in the middle, boom begins to systematically, methodically chip away at the very infrastructure of trust between us. And if you don't agree with what I'm saying, if you find it hard to believe, then I just want you to do this. Take a look at this Jenga tower, kind of chipped away, kind of vulnerable. I bet if I were to, whoo, yeah, it would fall. And just ask yourself, is this not a picture of the condition of our social relationships right now in this nation with each other? I mean, we don't trust each other. We don't because we don't know if we're really telling the truth to each other. I, and so bit by bit, every time I tell a half-truth or every time I hear a half-truth or one that is a bold-faced lie, bit by bit, the guard goes up and we become paranoid and we become suspicious of one another. And bit by bit, we become... Oh, vulnerable to collapse. I mean, this week we even talk, we're talking about truth, and I'm preparing the sermon, and I hope that every Christian in the world had the hair on the back of their neck stand up a little bit when you heard one thing this week in the news. There's this, one of, one of the people in the news in a fire exchange, and, and maybe they were misunderstood, maybe it was in the heat of an argument, said it, I don't know, I can't be responsible for somebody's motive. But you hear the words, Truth is not truth. And the, the hair on the back of this pastor's neck 
stood up on end because I, truth is not tr- then truth is not truth. And immediately I went to the 18th chapter of the book of Matthew. And I saw our Lord standing bound before Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate says, you know, they want me to kill you. They, want, what, they say that you say that you are a king. Are you a king? And, and he says, our Lord, the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, says to him, um, you say that I'm a king. I have come to bear witness to the truth, and those who believe the truth are with me. And then Pilate looks him in the face, looks, looks our Lord in the face and says to him, what is truth? Now, what is truth? Knowing in just a matter of minutes he will, he will trade Barabbas and our Lord will be taken and executed, crucified for our transgressions. This embodiment of truth, the enfleshment of truth, Truth personified standing there, and, and, and he has the, the, the audacity to say, uh, what is truth? It occurs to me we've not developed much in the last 2,000 years. We live, at times it feels, like in a post-truth world. A post-truth world. I mean, it, it used to be that you would hear things like this, um, believe Half of what you see and what? And none of what you hear. But nowadays, it's like, believe none of what you see nor anything that you hear because we become that vulnerable to one another bit by bit, lie by lie. And it's been happening for ages. I mean, no kidding. You can, I can, I can watch the news and, and from time to time, I actually fast from it. I try not to as much as I can. But when I do, I watch like as many networks as possible to report on the same thing to see, well, how are they going to treat this thing that's happened? How are they going to treat this thing that's happened? How are they? And, and I'm not kidding you. It'd be like this. It's like, um, okay, I turn on the television, and here's one channel, and it's like um, a meteor fell to the earth and landed in a field. And then I switch the channel, and it's like a meteor fell to the earth and landed in a field. But the real question is, how long did NASA know about it? And why didn't we know? And then I changed the channel again, and it's like, a meteor fell from the sky and landed in a field. But really, what is a field? And isn't it a meteorite after it lands and not really a meteor? Do you see what I'm saying? And bit by bit, jingle by jingle, we, we chip away at our capacity to trust. And the ninth commandment knows that. The ninth commandment is there because... Of that. And instead of you and I gathering here week to week and pointing only to the large newsmakers, instead of pointing to the headlines that it would be the easy target this week, easy target about what it means to violate the ninth commandment, the ninth commandment is not about them. It's not about the big institutions and, and the organizations. It's about you and me. The ninth commandment is about. How is our relationship with the truth? Which leads us to the next movement of the sermon. Feather pillows. Feather pillows. Um, Just for the record, you know, I don't, the monitors here are not working. um, So we're going blind. We might be here to two o'clock, (laughs) y'all. We're making this up as we go. Just kidding. 
Are you seeing notes? Are you seeing notes? Good, okay. As long as you see them. Feather pillows. In the 4th century B.C., there was a philosopher named Diogenes the Cynic. He was well-loved. He was, he was beloved by people far and wide because of his philosophical school of thought. The way he criticized everybody. He was kind of snarky. And, and then, so Diogenes the Cynic was also an ascetic. It means he had an ascetic life. He, he shunned uh, privilege and affluence and wealth and lived poor. He lived in a hollowed-out barrel. Is there a picture of it here? No. Imagine a hollowed-out barrel. And he lived there with his dog. And he lived there from day to day. People would come from miles around to see him. One of the people who came to see him one day was Alexander the Great. And he came from far away, and he says, Diogenes, I have finally met the great cynic, the great philosopher. Name anything that you want, and Alexander will see that it is done for you. And Alexander said, oh, good. Then move a little, because you're blocking the sun. But of all the things he's known for, the thing he's known best for is he's always pictured with a lamp in his hand. I want you to imagine a lamp <laughs> in my hand. And he carries a lamp around with him day and night lit in order to provoke the question, why are you carrying a lamp, Diogenes? And Diogenes would always reply, because I'm looking to see if I can find at least one truly honest human being. It is said that he died having found none. And that's because every one of us are capable of bearing false witness against one another. I mean, just break down the phrase, bearing false witness. You shall not bear false witness. To bear something means to carry, to lift it up, to hold. You and I have the capacity to lift up and hold lies, gossip, slander, half-truth. Do you know that I had a colleague in ministry? He moved to a new town and was the new pastor in that town. He went driving around town uh, in the first couple of weeks um, with this 19-year-old woman in his car. And he would go and they would have lunch. He would drive around looking at the sights. He would be seen again and again in his car with this 19-year-old woman. Rumors began to pop around town that first couple, three weeks about how the pastor's stepping out on his wife because she's got, he's got this 19-year-old woman he's driving around in his car. And the problem was it's absolutely true. He says, I've been driving around this 19-year-old all 19 of her years. She's my daughter. But you see how a half-truth is a whole lie. A half-truth is a whole lie. And we can bear false witness. We can carry those half-truths with us. We bear them along the way. Reminds me of the story from the Jewish Talmud of a man in this village, and he's, he has this business that he operates, but he's a big gossip. He can't keep his mouth shut. He talks about everybody. And at times when he can command an audience, he even embellishes some of the details a little bit because it tells a little bit better, you know, like a Baptist preacher. And a new, a new business owner moves to town across the, the street. 
man. He starts to talk bad about him, starts to just slander him, negative about him. In fact, heard one piece of information that was kind of half true, but it wasn't all true, and he let that go. He just told every one of his customers until eventually it choked off the business commerce for this new businessman across the street, and he had to sell his shop. He had to move away with his family. His family almost, almost fell apart. Well, over time, he began to feel a little bit guilty about that. He's not sleeping well, so he goes to talk to the rabbi. And he says to the rabbi, I can't sleep at night because I think maybe I, I was a little irresponsible. I think I may have shared some rumors that were not really true, and I may have contributed to this. What should I do? And the rabbi said, bring me your pillow. So he brings this pillow filled with thousands of feathers, a goose down feather pillow, you know, the good kind. He brings him to the rabbi, and the rabbi takes him upstairs to the upper room and opens the window. He cuts the bottom of the pillow, and he begins to shake the pillow like crazy. All of the, the feathers flying out into the wind, and these, these swirling, dervish gusts of wind take them as far as you could see, thousands of miles away. It just, it just doesn't. It's like almost like Forrest Gump. You know, it's like... And they just float away, and they're, they're, they're miles to, from, from the window now, and... And he says, this is what you do. Go and collect all of the feathers and put them back in your pillow. And you will sleep as soundly as the man whom you slandered. He says, it's impossible. And so it is impossible to bring back what you have said when you have witnessed falsely against your neighbor. See? The question that you and I have to wrestle with is, to what extent do you and I at the, same, at the same pace run about town telling the things that we know because it gives us power, satisfaction? I think things are our mouths. They, they are capable of great good. We can build whole worlds with, with the spoken word. It's what we attempt to do in worship, isn't it? But with the same mouth. You can tear down the cosmos. This is why James put it this way. James says some things about the tongue. There it is. Oh, Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set afire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body, it corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. When we bear false witness, gossip, slander, half-truths about our neighbor, it sets the world on fire. But the trouble is, bearing false witness doesn't begin with our words. It doesn't start with our tongue. It starts at a deeper, more interior place. Psalm 51, after this, this nightmarish experience that David went through after his sin with Bathsheba, and he's repenting, and he's, he's sorrowful. He's, he's mourning how, how far he let himself go with this, and he prays to the Lord, and this is what he says. You desire, listen with a broken heart, you desire truth in my innermost being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. You and I have the capacity to bear false witness both on institutional and individual, public and private, systemic and secret ways. And the text says God desires 
honesty, truthfulness in our interior, on our innermost heart. And our Lord, who was the truth, said this about it in Matthew's gospel. But the things that come out of a person's mouth, they come from the heart. And these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. See, these are all the commandments. And Jesus, who takes the commandments and and amplifies them so that we might understand them in, in living in this Christian way, says, it all starts in here. Bearing false witness doesn't begin with the mouth. It begins in the heart. It's a heart problem. So the question of the day is this. If Diogenes were to carry his lamp into the interior of you, what would it illuminate? How many feathers have you sent blowing into the wind because of some irresponsible relationship that you have with truth? Which leads us to the last movement of the sermon. Coco the gorilla. Coco the gorilla. So apparently we're kind of hardwired to lie. Our brains are made where it's possible to lie. And the bigger the brain, the bigger the neocortex, the more developed the neocortex is, the better your capacity, the better liar you are. I mean, we can trace this with brain imaging technologies where parts of the brain light up more in some regions when you're holding two opposing realities at the same time and holding back information. You can measure lying now. And apparently, the bigger the brain, the more your capacity to lie. So did you know that um, chimpanzees, for example, chimpanzees have been observed to hide some food and then lead the other chimps away from the food and then come back and eat it alone by him or herself. But my favorite example of how we're kind of wired this way is of Coco the gorilla. You remember Coco? Coco was the famous gorilla who, um, who, who learned sign language. You remember at 46, back in June, died been watching her for a long time, right? She, learned, she, has, she knows about a thousand signs. She can interpret about 2,000 English words. Uh, she became truly endearing when she got a pet. They let her have a, a kitten. In fact, we may have a video here uh, of, of Coco. There she is. When she receives her first kitten, she's tender with it, this massive beast, gently, tenderly. You almost kind of think, Okay, she's going to eat her. But, but she doesn't. Well, she just kind of nurtures and cuddles. And so everybody loved Coco, but the most, the most interesting story I ever heard about Coco was this. One time she blamed her kitten for ripping the sink out of the wall. <laughs> she did. She rips the sink out of the wall and blames the kitten, you know. It's, it's like <laughs> the larger the brain, the more our capacity to lie. Uh, Dan Arely was his name. He's a Duke University professor, and he's the, the, the chair of the Center for Advanced Hindsight. No kidding. It's the name of the, the Center for Advanced Hindsight, which is just classic, isn't it? Isn't that great? He conducted 
a series of landmark experiments on human dishonesty. So back in the 90s, he watched, as many of us watched, all kinds of scandals. Wall Street, Washington, even pro sports. Remember the doping controversies and all? And it prompted he and his researchers in 2002 to initiate what's called the Matrix uh, Experiments. The Matrix Experiments. My favorite one was this. They would gather about 15, 20 college students on a college campus, Carnegie Mellon Institute, would gather them together and would give them 20 questions, math questions. They weren't that difficult, but they were college level. The difficult task was this. You only have five minutes to solve all 20. And here's the instruction. When you finish, bring your paper and check at your seat. Check your answers to the answer key. Remember how many you got right. And then take your answer to the front of the room and take your answer sheet and shred it in the shredder. And then come to us and tell us how many answers you got right out of 20. And we'll give you $1 for every right answer. What they didn't tell uh, the participants was they had tinkered with uh, the shredder so that it only shredded the edges of the paper so that when they left the room they could compare their answer with their real answer. On average, most participants reported getting seven questions right. The answer was four questions right. The truth was four questions. This experiment was conducted on 40,000 people. 70% of them lied. They cheated. 70%. Because there's no consequence and it looks to be socially acceptable, so it leads Dan and his other researchers to what he refers to as the fudge factor. The fudge factor means if it's socially acceptable and everybody else is doing it and I'm going to even get rewarded for it, then, then I'm going to be more likely to lie. This is why you go 80 miles an hour in a 70 mile an hour zone because you say to yourself, well, I'm just trying to what? Keep up with traffic, right? We all lie. And we are. We want to survive. But that's what. And so this is what makes us more likely. So here's what they did. They changed the variable of this experiment. And they hired an actor, a Carnegie Mellon actor, who comes in and participates in the study as well. But they give the same instructions, they give the same rewards, and they say, look, come up, bring your paper, shred it, we'll pay you however many you got right. 20 seconds into the experiment, he says, I'm finished. I mean, they're on question one. Finished. Okay, great. Bring it up. Tell us. I got all 20 right. And pay the actor $20. What do you think that did to the rest of the students? So it elevated the... The more socially acceptable it is, the more non-consequential it is, the more rewarding it is if everybody's doing it, then one at a time, I may just contribute to this thing because who is it going to hurt after all? Yeah. So they changed the variable again. Same classroom, it happens on Carnegie Mellon uh, campus, same classroom, same instructors, Carnegie Mellon instructors, Carnegie Mellon students, even the actor is a Carnegie Mellon actor. But this time they said, what would happen if we put the actor in a University of Pittsburgh sweatshirt? 
So he comes into this experiment, and he's wearing the pit shirt. And 20 seconds in, says, finished. Oh, good. How many did you get? 20. Gets 20 bucks. He walks out. Guess what happens? The others in the room, because he's wearing a pit shirt, rationalize in their own limbic system, in their own neocortex. Well, that's what they do at pit. That's not who we are. And lying reduced. And I think about that story and that research, that amazing research, when I think about the ninth commandment, because maybe that's the point. Maybe the ninth commandment is there because God is trying to point out to God's people that all the rest of the world can wear a University of Pittsburgh sweatshirt, but not you. That's not who you are. The reason we're commanded do not bear false witness against your neighbor is because that's not who we are. We are not just those who don't bear false witness. We are those who bear the truth. It's not enough to simply avoid violating the ninth commandment. You and I, as people of faith, as followers of Jesus Christ, are meant to pursue bearing up the truth in this world. What would happen to this Jenga world if the people of faith would rise up and say no more I will honor you as my neighbor and you will honor me as your neighbor and we will speak truthfully to one another why because it's truth who abides in us truth isn't an idea truth is a person and that person abides in us like a, uh, like a treasure in clay jars. That truth abides in us. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is our only remedy for the fracture of this world. So maybe the prayer that we pray, that somebody prays today is this. God, I confess to you, I repent. I repent because I confess to you I have contributed to the Jenga nation, to the Jenga universe. I have harbored and borne up half-truths, half-cocked ideas. I've been sloppy with the truth and contributed to the fragmentation of the world that you designed. I am sorry, forgive me. Or maybe, maybe our prayer is, is this. I have been responsible for thousands of feathers blown about in all the world, all four directions, because I have been casual with bearing you in me. And maybe today you come to realize that this truth that I'm talking about as a person perhaps has never been invited to live in your heart. And as you today hear my words, perhaps for the very first time, you yield your heart so that truth may authentically abide within us. Let's pray together. God, we do stop here in this moment to acknowledge to you that you are the truth, that you matter and we recognize and confess that we have abused your truth. And, and, and we, have, we have borne false witness. We have lived in ways that can be contrary to your way. And, and we pray that you would forgive us this day. 
We pray that somebody here on campus, Lord, would sense the stirring that is within their own heart and allow you to have your, your way. We pray these things in the name of our Lord, in the name of Christ, the truth. Amen.